remember that this was like 19 okay this was the spring of 1995 none of this stuff was happening yet so we go it's in an old house there's like couches and chairs everywhere Dave Crowder is there and nobody knows who he is because he's like still in college or was just graduated from college anyway he has a goatee and like you know, jeans on. Chris C gets up and he's got jeans on. We sang a Hootie and the Blowfish song. It was conversation. It, the whole, everything about it just entirely blew my mind. I loved everything about all of it. I just loved all of these people. I loved all the conversations we were having. But every 500 years, the uh, Latinized culture goes through a, a huge upheaval, and we're going through one right now. Every time that happens, whatever form of Christianity has to drop back and reconfigure it doesn't ever cease to be. They had a deep suspicion of hierarchy and institutionalism. If fear is the motivation behind not dealing with the sort of in the back of your mind questions, that to me is the worst kind of faith of all. It's, it's yeah. despair. Welcome to Emerged, a story of young leaders who had audacious dreams, who became loyal friends, who achieved fame and influence, who burned brightly but briefly. And now for the first time, many of the leaders reflect on their participation in the emerging church movement, and they consider the movement's legacy. Join us as we tell the tale of their successes and failures, the attacks they endured, the mistakes they made, what they left undone, and what they accomplished. Join us to hear the story of what emerged. And now, here are your hosts, Tony Jones and Trip Fuller, with producer Josh Gilbert. I want to find my way on my way back home I want to learn to love Where were you guys in where were you guys in 1992 <laughs> <laughs> Uh I was not even a thought yet I was negative 2 Okay trip I was hitting puberty <laughs> that's what I was doing <laughs> Well I was in my second year of seminary Well you guys if you were a pastor in the mid-90s, every Tuesday morning, your fax machine would fire up, and you got a free fax from Leadership Network. It was called NetFax. No way. Oh, yeah. And they sent – in what Leadership Network, it was a foundation in Dallas, and they gathered together all of the most successful baby boomer pastors – and they would put these guys in a circle, all guys, of course, evangelical baby boomer pastors, like, why are your churches growing so dramatically? And it would be like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, and it's it's these kind of famous guys who planted churches in the 80s, and now by the mid-90s, these churches are growing. So they'd be like, there'd be you'd get a net fax on a Tuesday, and then the secretary at the church would make photocopies and put them in everyone's mailbox. And one week it would be like, you need to have parking for pregnant moms within 50 feet of the entrance to the church that leads to the nursery. That's one thing we've learned from these baby boomer, seeker-sensitive megachurch pastors, you know, or you need to have a cry and nursing room with a one-way mirrored glass in the back of your sanctuary. It was all that stuff, right? It was super pragmatic. And this leadership network, they were like the hub of that kind of innovation among baby boomers. But, dun, dun, dun. Then one of the, what they found is that Gen Xers were not coming back to church. Baby boomers had like dropped out and tuned in when they were in college and smoked weed and, you know, uh, streaked and 
uh, had campus sit-ins. But then baby boomers, after they graduated, they moved to the burbs, had kids, and started going back to church again. And Gen Xers, that's me, uh, we weren't going back to church and we definitely, you know, not in the numbers of the boomers. And that's when Leadership Network was like, okay, we did this for the baby boomers. We built these huge mega churches. What are we going to do for the Gen Xers? And that was where they turned their attention to a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this, in this episode. You'll hear a lot in this episode about youth ministry. And I think we forget sometimes how radical youth ministry in the 80s and 90s was because it there was an old model of youth ministry that was like Youth for Christ where kids were like uh, uh, coats and ties and were, you know, memorizing Bible verses. But then along came these California hippies, Wayne Rice, Mike Iaconelli, Tick Long, and they started Youth Specialties. And that was like... I want to be honest, if you're a youth worker here and you don't have a rule that is made because of your youth ministry, you're not a decent youth worker. They play games. They were playing music on guitars. It was like hippie time. There's got to be something. No soccer in the sanctuary. I just heard a couple weeks ago that this youth worker has one in his church. No playing hide and seek in the organ pipes. Yes! Those of us who were part of the early emergent Almost all of us had been in youth ministry in those those days of youth specialties and Mike Iaconelli. And guess what our youth rooms looked like? We had couches. The lighting was dark. Like we hung Christmas lights around the youth room. So those are two streams that I think you're going to hear, Leadership Network, and you're going to hear youth ministry in a lot of this first episode. I mean, one thing was like a lot of these big churches – they were very empowering of youth ministry. They gave a lot of budget money to youth ministry. If you want to put, you know, re- remodel the youth room, if you want to take all uh, 70 kids on a mission trip, like what do you need? We'll make it happen. So I think a lot of us who are doing youth ministry in the 80s and 90s felt very empowered. But then think about this. Your kids in your youth group graduate, they go away to college or they get jobs or they go into the military and then they come back and they're used to church being fun and relational and high energy and informal and authentic. And you're like, yeah, you, that's how you were involved when you were 16. But now that you're 26, you need to be on the church council and go to a meeting the first Tuesday of every month and drink coffee out of a styrofoam cup and go by Robert's Rules of Order. Throughout these kind of origin stories of the emerging church movement, uh, be it in leadership network or uh, at different church minister gatherings and this, this kind of networking that moves beyond the traditional kind of denominational system, uh, one of the things that animated the networking were when people heard ideas uh, that were different than the ones they were used to. But you get these ideas uh, from people like Dallas Willard or Stan Grins or Nancy Murphy, and, and all of them are trying to propose the, and present in ways that the church can hear the big philosophical and epistemological shifts. And I wonder when listening back to this, if in real time they recognized that this epistemology shift or this philosophical shift was as central as it sounds hearing the story, right? Like so many of these, uh, so many of these tension points, and we'll hear it re- extend as we go on. Uh, is is uh, whether or not fidelity to the gospel means fidelity to the framing in which you first encountered it, and what Stan Grins and Nancy Murphy did as evangelical theologians is go. No, well, the gospel isn't just the normative epistemology of boomer white evangelicals in America. Uh, also, um, we kept reading. Right. And, and I think that it's important to capture that because so often the spectator experience of the emerging church movement are when you find out a particular thinker or leader or church planner said something that's beyond our doctrinal boundary. But what was animating people was not oh, the specific conclusion, uh, but, but a desire to rearticulate, reengage and reembody uh, the faith without these normative assumptions uh, that, that just had this inertia within the inherited expression of the church. 
What you're going to hear, in, even in this very first episode, you're going to already start to see the tension and how the tension is building. Because think about what I said about Leadership Network. Those net faxes that came to your church every Tuesday, they were super pragmatic. And what Leadership Network and those gatherings of, of pastors did not do was discuss theology because some of them baptized infants and some of them baptized only adults because the way that they practice communion because of whether they allowed women to preach. So they just avoided all kind of theological talk. This was purely pragmatic. It was called the church growth movement for a reason. It wasn't called the gospel growth movement or something. They were trying to make bigger churches. So immediately at the beginnings of what became the emerging movement, when we're listening to theologians and philosophers like Stan Grenz and Dallas Willard and Nancy Murphy, already we're talking not just about the pragmatics, but about the very core of the message. You know, And we would hear things early on that was like, the methods change, the message never changes. That was one thing that like Rick Warren said to us. To, you know, like, and we're, we're all like screaming, Marsha McLuhan, have you not ever read Marsha McLuhan? So yeah, that became a very early tension. And, you know, in episodes two and three, by the episode three of Emerged, you're going to hear about how we went our own separate way from Leadership Network. And that in large part, it was that. But you guys, before we get to that, we're jumping ahead. Let's go back in time. The first voice you heard was that of Danielle Schroyer, who went on to pastor Journey Dallas, which was an emerging church in Dallas, but not in 1995. She was an undergrad at Baylor, sitting on a couch at a church, University Baptist, planted by Chris C., and the worship leader was Dave Crowder. And Danielle Schroyer gives us a great insight into what it was like in those proto-emergent days. So let's hear more from Danielle about sitting on that couch in Waco. I remember like in my very you know, personal relationship with Jesus at the moment um, as an 18-year-old, I was like, you know what, God? I actually did not know that you could do church differently. I had felt called into ministry, and I was like, I will be a professor, and that's it, because church didn't work for me really ever. And I remember that morning saying like, you know what, God? If you are telling me to be a pastor of a church where I get to maybe do things differently, I'm all the way in. And I think just that little one conversation and one experience changed my life because I realized that that's exactly what I wanted to do. So I was really involved in UBC from that time forward. Um, You know, started going and then I became a, you know, I was a regular and then I ended up my senior year having a little internship there as part of like my ministry thing of my religion major. Um, I met Doug Paget there. I was, what, a junior in college, and he came down because he was doing leadership network stuff. And we did, it was when um, Brad Cecil did his um, famous PowerPoint. We're not quite ready to get to Brad Cecil's famous PowerPoint yet. And we are going to hear a lot more about that Doug Paget guy. But first, let's hear from Tim Condor. And if I could, I'm going to tell a quick story from the late 80s. I was pastoring a large church in Boston, the kind of church you would know this, Tony, 50 different high schools represented, youth ministry, and the probably 400 or so high school students, a couple hundred uh, junior hires, and, um, and it was a diverse congregation, meaning I had kids from kind of tenement housing and, and you know, very Cambridge and Saugus and various parts of, of, of Boston, and then I also had kind of the super up-and-coming, probably for you, you would recognize as a dynamic kids, but those for us were Lexington and Concord kids building resumes. They rule the earth. They're your age right now. And uh, you could find them on senatorial staffs and things like that. And then I had 
affluent kids. I mean, I had kids that were, had already made it and needed to do really nothing else based on family wealth. And as a youth pastor, I understood very quickly in that diverse environment. If you remember kind of Breakfast Club, 1985, the whole notion of a monolithic youth culture uh, being exploded in a media representation. But I was doing that every day as a youth pastor. Uh, But by virtue of being in a large, famous church, I got roped into the leadership network process. Uh, In the late 80s, they got the money from Bob Buford and chose to, after a long process, network large, significant churches. So I went to the first gathering where they brought in 30 youth pastors with one goal in mind. And that goal was to meet Doug Paget. <laughs> okay, there's that Doug Paget guy again. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to him. But now it's time to hear from the guy who put together the famous PowerPoint. And that's Brad Cecil. So I was pastoring a young adult congregation at Pantego Bible Church, which is now Central Bible Church. And we had formed this group called Access, and we had kind of stolen the name or partnered with what was going on up at Willow Creek at the time. And theirs was Axis. Okay, yeah, that's super confusing. Willow Creek's young adult service was Axis, A-X-I-S. The young adult service Brad started in Dallas was called Access, A-X-X-E-S-S. Anyway, back to Brad. And we wanted to do a a young adult service. And that was about 96, actually, 1996. We started our service and had really good attendance. But it was a wild event because it kind of made news locally because of the fact it was it was we had an open mic. People could talk. And so there was a there was always worship and presentation or music, musical worship presentation and then um, discussion about that presentation and um, one night I look out there and there's, there's Padgett sitting in the front row. And I'm like, but we had never met in person. And so he then came up and introduced himself afterwards and said, I'd like you to uh, come down to the office and we could talk about what you're doing. But I was, you know, I was brand new to this. And then he started inviting me to these events, these planning events. And so I started going along. There was no group uh, formed yet, but he invited me to a couple ones. But that was one of the events that he invited me to was that that dinner there at Papacitos. (laughs) We're also going to get back to that famous dinner at Papacitos in Dallas. But the wait is over. It's time now finally to hear from the man to whom everyone else has been pointing Doug Paget. I sat down for this emerged project in Doug's basement and we had a fantastic conversation. You're going to hear pieces of it spread through many episodes. One of the things we talked about early in our conversation was how the two of us met when we were youth pastors and uh, a lot of the people who ended up forming the emerging church movement had experience in youth ministry. So Here's a bit of my conversation with the one and only Doug Padgett. Let's talk briefly about youth ministry, because it's no coincidence that you, Tim Keel, Chris, I mean, you go down the line, just about everybody had been a youth pastor and that we were really doing youth ministry at, at the high point of American youth ministry. Mike Iaconelli was still alive. 15,000 youth workers a year were going to the national youth workers convention. And you had a David Letterman esque set built at Wooddale church where you were like Letterman. Right. And I mean, you had people like rappel down, on wires. I mean, um, all manner of that stuff. Doug, think about that. Youth ministry 
I mean, there might be still gimmicky stuff like that. Is it not, is it like, not that. like that anymore? I, I just think you, I think we did youth ministry. No drive-in movie theaters, no car smashing, no, <laughs> no bungee swings from in Sunday morning from the inside of the gymnasium. Literally did that. So the, the, my, my point in all that is. Oh, those are the good old days. Those kids that we pastored with, with all that at, at really when youth ministry was on, clicking on all cylinders, what were we going to do? Send them back to big people church? Yeah. Right. That that's part of it, right? Yes. That's what I thought. We had to give them something. Yeah. As it turns out, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> they just moved back. Like if we kind went. of we, yeah, if they went. Yeah, like if they stayed in churches, that's precisely what they did. Yeah. I mean, I just felt a personal need to be part of something. Just personally and temperamentally, I'd always organized people from the time I started into Christianity. I was like organizing people, youth pastors in and around Minnesota and then youth pastors around the country before I went to Leadership Network. Like that was a, that was just a built-in assumption of a thing that I would do. Um, so I didn't really think a lot about it. I just knew, well, I don't know, we got to know people and go places. How, how are we going to do that? Who's, who's, who's going to do that for us? And the, the current system did not want to do it for us. Of course, we're going to hear a lot more from Doug Patchett. But now, we're going to turn to Gerardo Marty. Gerardo is a sociologist at Davidson College and the author of the 2015 book, The Deconstructed Church, Understanding Emerging Christianity. One of the things that I think is unappreciated is the way in which evangelical Christianity really took off in the mid-1980s. I asked Gerardo what led to the emerging church movement. What was happening in the late 80s and early to mid-90s that kind of plowed the field or was on the religious landscape at the time that uh, gave the fertile soil in which the emerging movement grew. And so it really didn't start with Reagan's presidency, but Reagan's presidency certainly fueled a fire that continued to allow for a deep mobilization of evangelical Christianity, um, the kind of Christianity that we think of as more conservative, more politically conservative, certainly, but also even more fundamentalist in the sense that they were attempting to still hold to an inerrancy of Scripture um, and speak as if every word, every line was true and arranging that in such a way that it could speak to all of the dynamics of the day. So when you have such a spectacular growth, you have a lot of people being funneled into a set of things that they were all supposed to accept. And so it became not just a revival of people coming to Christ, it also became an organizational corralling of people toward activities in church, voting in elections in particular way, and reshaping their lifestyles to suit the gendered and racialized expectations that were being held at the time. And so as people attempted to live out what was seen to be the right Christian thing to do, they found that not everything was quite consistent between the leaders that were telling uh, them to do things and what the leaders were actually doing. Now, we also found that people were caught in oppressive and domineering, controlling structures. So all of those things culminated because more and more people were disenchanted. And the growth of churches still continued to propel younger and younger people into positions of leadership where now, despite the questions and issues that they may have, they were now expected to carry forward these initiatives in organizations, in large organizations, megachurches often, and these nonprofit organizations. Well, you take people who already have questions, and then you take them behind the curtain to actually see how the, you know, how the sausage is made, then all of those questions break open even more so. So when we get to the point of something we call the emerging church movement, what we have are some very conscientious, thoughtful people 
who had been dedicated in their faith, had been able to see and experience a lot of things, and then saw it from behind the curtain and started to become more vocal in questioning, what are we really doing here? You know, what do we mean by the gospel? What do we mean by the church? And what do we mean by the kinds of initiatives that we're all supposed to buy into in being good Christians? And so that's what I think of as how the 80s became the late 90s, uh, which then fostered all kinds of other things because the 2000s didn't get much better in relation to what was happening in the American church. Don't go away. We will be right back with more Emerged, including more from Tim Conder, Doug Paget, Brad Cecil, and Danielle Schroyer. We'll be right back. Hey, friends, if you, if you want to hang out with us, then consider coming to Theology Beer Camp this October in Denver, Colorado. You'll not just get to hang out with us. There'll be 20 or so different podcasts. There'll be 20 or so different scholars, theologians, biblical scholars and such, and there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people who like asking big questions and aren't sure where, how together to do it. If you want to be a part of that, come taste the fun and delicious craft beverages. Come to camp, theologybeer.camp. Check it out, and we'll see you there. In The God of Wild Places, Tony Jones opens up for the first time about what pushed him out of the church and into the woods. And he explores the spiritual insights he's gained in wild places, about place and peace, about risk and failure, about predators and death. Brian McLaren says, I love this book. I love its honesty, its tenderness, its craft, its settings, its quests and questions, and the profound mysteries toward which it bows. It takes you places you need to go. The God of Wild Places by Tony Jones is available wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Emerged. I'm Tony Jones. We just heard from Gerardo Marti, a sociologist who has studied the emerging church movement in depth, and he was giving us some background of evangelicalism in the 1980s and 1990s that led to the emergence of the movement. Uh, And he talked about how a lot of evangelical churches and nonprofits were starting to look to Gen Xers, who we were then in our late 20s and early 30s, as uh, the next generation of leaders. And there was some dissonance between what we Gen Xers were were looking for and um, what we were finding in those big evangelical churches. So we're going to turn back to our conversation with Tim Conder, and he uh, takes us back actually to the late 80s and gives a little insight into some of that dissonance. Doug and I gathered uh, together probably in 1987. So this is 10 years before Glorietta. Sorry to keep doing this to you, but Glorietta is another thing that we're going to talk about. In fact, episode two is really going to be about the lead up to the conference that we held in Glorietta, New Mexico in 1998. So we will get to it. But that's what Tim's talking about here. 10 years before that and met each other. And we went, oh my gosh, we were listening to all these youth pastors from large churches and oh, filled with all kinds of hilarious bullshit. I mean, even there was one moment where there was one very well-known pastor, this is pre-cell phones, obviously, who's in the lobby on a, you know, a payphone confessing that there'd be no more affairs with his wife. (laughs) (laughs) And Doug Padgett and I were looking at each other going, what in the hell are these people, right? I mean, this is, they're they're talking about a, a, a world that 
doesn't exist, or at least didn't exist in our experiences and what we were observing. That's where Doug and I became friends. We actually got involved with kind of planning, a, kind of a gathering of youth leaders in the late 80s, early 90s with the idea of at least uh, jokingly taking over youth specialties. But in reality, the idea of, of crafting something that matched the social context. So that's actually where Doug and I became friends. That relates to uh, a second story. In the early 90s, I'm in a college town now, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I'm having drinks and hanging out with young, you know, assistant professors in the humanities, and they're starting to talk about things like postmodernism and poststructuralism. And I don't really know what those are, but I'm getting a feel of that. And there's this sense that, you know what? If that's kind of the epistemology that we're going to use, this is going to change a lot. Uh, so that was my experience of just a youth pastor now in a much more diverse community, college town, but kids that were in a whole different social context than what I had been told uh, youth ministry would look like in seminary in the 1980s. Um, but I had some friends, uh, particularly Jimmy Long of InterVarsity, uh, the, the church that I worked in had a big InterVarsity connection, and they were starting to rummage around in these kind of generational models. You remember that? the Gen X, the Baby Busters, the, you know, all of those things. And there's some interest. That book, 13th Gen, came out and Copeland's Generation X and all of that was starting to brew. And so the kind of Christian, technological, data, mech, you know, tech world really started to shift its attention to generations. So there was a gathering that Jimmy Long had gotten funded with InterVarsity and Leighton Ford Ministries, and they were going to bring various voices in uh, to talk about, uh, it was called Reaching Baby Busters, uh, but it was a, a you know, well-paid 10 people. And I actually remember asking Jimmy, who was a dear friend of mine, yeah, hey, can I come to this? And he said very nicely and appropriately, oh, this is way above your pay grade. <laughs> We're actually spending money on people. <laughs> we don't need you listening into this. But uh, somebody that you and I both know, Tick Long from Youth Specialties, was supposed to be at that event. Um, but Tick uh, was just finishing those giant youth conventions that Youth Specialties did. And he called me up. We were friends. And he said, I can't do this thing in Charlotte, North Carolina. If I emailed you my notes, emailed me, that, is that correct? Uh, Probably not. not no, no, no. <laughs> if, if I, I put my notes in an envelope or fax, maybe a fax. Yeah, this is 1993. Definitely, maybe a fax. But if I sent you my notes, would you cover for me? And so I went and covered. And this was a gathering that had notably some people like Dieter Zander from New Song Church at the time and uh, Stanley Grintz, uh, who was, you know, teaching philosophy. And again, and Leighton Ford was kind of the funder and the, you know, uh, Billy Graham Ministries. The focus was definitely on the idea of evangelizing, you know, how. How are we going to evangelize these Pearl Jam listening, right. uh, uh, long shirts and torn jeans group of people that don't seem to, you know, give a crap about anything? And as a part of that conversation, Stanley Grintz, he said, I have no idea why I'm here. I work on this notion of postmodernism. And he pulled out his Star Trek illustration. Tony, I think you've heard the Star Trek thing. Uh, I, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I, I don't remember. I think it was comparing the prime. Is that right? The prime directives or, you know. Of- it was comparing everything about the original series with Star Trek Next Generation. Right. And like everything from how they ran the ship to their prime directive to how they dealt with uh, different cultures. And it was pretty genius. I heard it in Glorietta for the first time in 98. Tight as a drum. And as he starts talking very, very humbly about this, that's when it really hit me. I I flash back now to all of these professors I'm talking to and thinking, oh, we're not really talking about some sort of new curtains in the room. This is an epistemological shift. This is at the very core of how we know truth. And this is going to change everything. In that gathering, you had 
people who were already doing successful ministry, but in an old paradigm. But for me, I was like, oh shit, this is, I mean, I've got to go back to the workshop and rethink everything. It explains some things, but what we're doing is entirely wrong. And interestingly, we encouraged, we were so moved by what uh, uh, Stanley had to say that um, he, he wrote a primer on postmodernism as a response to that. Jimmy Long wrote an excellent book, Emerging Hope, that, that came out of that. And it, was a, it, it had some legs, but here's the funny part. Here's where the two stories come together. I had seen all already in the last kind of five years, the power of Doug Paget's convening power, right? Doug Paget walks into a room and people follow him out, right? Doug is that type of person that says, hey, a few of us are going for dinner and 50 people show up. That happens so many times in our emergent life. And I, I had always this sense that Doug was going to be in the center of whatever was next. But then I thought, oh my goodness, you know, Doug is at some point was about to be, you know, funded by, by leadership network. And I thought, you know what? Doug is not going to buy this. He is going to be utterly committed to a, a generational model. And I'm almost nervous to tell him that. I don't think a generational lens is the lens that we're about to live in. In fact, I remember calling him up one time and kind of sheepishly saying, Doug, are you reading some things on, this would have been 95, 94. Are you reading some things on postmodernism? Are you talking to people that are thinking about that? Um, I couldn't have at that point in time in any way distinguished post-structuralism from postmodernism, but I did know the words and could spell them correctly. Um, and, <laughs> and that was where Doug said, no, this is exactly exactly where we need to go on this. And I thought, oh my goodness. I'm not the only one kind of in the battered youth pastor beaten up in a large church. I'm not the only one who's going to think this. It was more about a commitment to practitioner-based experimentation. That was something I valued quite intensely from my own spiritual experiences of how I got into Christianity and the church that I'd worked in and the college, I went to a Christian college that I was in. So I was very interested in people who were doing things while they were trying to extend what they were doing, like a practitioner-based deep, reflective experimentation. Those words were all over all of the stuff we were talking about all the time. The context for that was, the cultural, socio-cultural context was thinking about the impact on cultural change as it impacts Gen X people who are not entering churches at the same rate as the fiction of the previous generations, right? And so I mockingly refer to that as the fiction. So I was, and I was never really into generationalism because I thought it was a bad form of sociology and anthropology. And still to this day, in fact, earlier today was babbling on about how I think it's such nonsense, but we were deeply concerned about our own lived experience as Gen Xy people and trying to say, we need to do something that responds to the needs that we knew. So both Tony and I were like older end of Gen Xers and we're fairly young as youth pastors. In the space between being a youth pastor and the people that were in the youth ministry, volunteers or teenagers or college people, it, w- it was all one kind of age vibe. And interestingly, Solomon's Porch, kind of the church then that I ended up start- starting that came out of all of this stuff, you know, started in 2000, was also kind of age-centric around that same same group of people. So it was kind of experimentation inside of an age demographic because that was our lived experience. Like over and over, we would say things about like, we're not trying to reach someone else. We're trying to figure out our own spirituality. It was never driven by that. It was this other prevailing, nagging question of could Christian spirituality be something of an asset and a benefit to us and those around us in the context that we find ourselves in. You are gonna change your mind someday So just let go of all your thoughts on tomorrow. When you look at that 93 
baby busters group. It launched some people. Dieter went in a different path, but ended up back in emergent. You know, several years later, uh, Stan Grintz became a key theologian. Uh, the, there was, you know, there was something there to that gathering that had us all in many ways primed. And there were a lot of Glorietta folks that came out of the tentacles of, of that group of people. So that's all to say, certainly that was happening in lots of different places, not just Charlotte, North Carolina, with some youth leaders. But it goes, there was this conversation that many of us on the ground, Tony, you were one of these people too, working with adolescents and emerging adults who realized the playbook was wrong, not just in terms of forms and styles of ministry, but literally how students either placed value in one thing or another, constructed their moral lives, or tried to make sense of what truth was, and it was going to change. And so I imagine a lot of those conversations are happening around the early 90s uh, that was going to make it easier to meet meet each other at some point down the road. Certainly Doug and I were in already in a mode of thinking, we're probably going to do something together on this, even though we had no idea what that would be. So that's a little bit of a window. Though one other thing I'll add on that is you look at that room in 1993, and it's all white, it's male, and it's evangelical. And so there was this deep restlessness, maybe for those of us who were saddled with evangelical theology to some, you were, Tony, you had a, a, a later degree, but those of us who were educated in the 80s were almost, I like to put it this way, we went to travel agent school about six months before the internet was formed. <laughs> you know? and so literally what we learned was the books that we bought were about to be put in the closet along the way. This I remember. I remember Jimmy Long. I remember there was a book by Dieter Zander and Tim Selleck that was very influential. Dieter had been at Willow Creek and had launched, didn't he launch the, that Axis Sunday night service? I don't know if he launched it, but he was the pastor of it. Danny Harrell was doing a young adult service in Boston. How large did Willow Creek loom over some of those early conversations? It loomed not only early, but, you know, as we really got together as a movement, but it also created that sense of who was going to be the front person of the band, right? Who was going to be the focal dominant pastor who constructed the paradigm? You know, the idea that, that as we understood post-modernity and the end of meta-narratives, there wasn't going to be a paradigm, but in those early days, the, the amount of attention that Willow Creek had gotten certainly created this impulse to find primary leaders and a model. And of course, there are connections because the funding is coming from the same place. Right, the young leaders network that we formed in the, uh, the you know the late nineties ninety six ninety seven was being funded by, by the the same folks that gifted the Willow Creek Association. So again, these are strong impulses that are very present early on. What Willow Creek was doing it with the Axis service and what was happening at Access and what happened uh, at Santa Cruz Bible Church with Dan Kimball and what happened at Christ Presbyterian Church in Minnesota with Kurt Bickman. These were all, you know, young adult services that were happening mostly on Sunday nights. It became known as the church within a church model. I asked Gerardo Marty about the tensions in these Sunday night Gen X services whose explicit goal was to funnel younger adults back into the main church service it wasn't really happening. So I asked Gerardo about that. That gap always was a problem for church leaders. Every time they tried to expand or create an exciting youth-oriented service or movement, whether it was middle school, high school, or college, they never were able to replicate that for whatever the main service would be. So at some point in time, you're supposed to get married. And when you get married, you calm down and you have kids and then you grow up. And so you just end up funneling in because you just accept that you're supposed to be an adult now and you don't need those kinds of things. 
which, by the way, that then fed a prejudice against liturgies and practices that happened for the youth services. And so, they were thought of as juvenile, appealing to, you know, the flesh, you know, right? It's the appealing to things and shallow, no theological depth. So, what ended up happening is rather than encouraging a deepening of Christian faith or even a reinvention or reorientation of the faith, it actually ended up both segregating and stigmatizing what those movements meant for younger people. And so, the older strains were the ones that always held the higher or more superior aspect of spirituality. And so, even today, people would say, you still need the hymns because the hymns are where you get the theology, right? Not 7-Eleven songs, things like that. Okay, but I think sociologically, Tony, the real issue here is each of these movements were attempting to represent an entire group of people and do something that would reach a homogeneous, a supposedly homogeneous group of people. And these were all supposed to like and follow things in this stair-step fashion. Who knows, maybe the church growth movement with its advocacy of targeting particular kinds of people may have fed this narrative, but everybody was supposed to be a member of a larger kind of group or tribe or common you know, sort of lifestyle orientation of some sort. The real break that the emerging church people did is they refused to accept that everyone was a part of the same group, that everyone had the exact same orientations, likes, desires, even songs and, you know, music interests or things like that. There was an acceptance that whatever faith was going to be, it needed to be your individual faith. It needed to be something that you grabbed onto and that you yourself were able to wrestle with, even if you were ambiguous about a lot of things, and that it didn't have to be something that was imposed or even shared by everybody else. And that involves a fundamentally different orientation towards ecclesiology, towards theological development, and even towards any notion of community, okay? So, if we inherited something from, you know, the century before, it was that people believe that churches are made up of people who are all similar, have a similar identity, similar connections, and therefore they did and thought the same kinds of things. And the emerging church movement most boldly said, look, faith is individualized, and that means that we're going to create places that are inherently pluralist, because we are not going to impose what everybody should believe, and we allow people to even contradict, not only with other people, but even within themselves, for the things that they are trying to live out as they try to grasp what the Christian life is supposed to be about. And one of the innovative leaders who was uh, doing the kind of stuff that Gerardo was talking about was Brad Cecil starting Access in Dallas. You weren't a pastor at Pantego Bible Church, were you? You were, were you a volunteer? Like, what was your role there when you launched Access? Yeah, so I came here uh, to go to seminary. And when I, when I got here in uh, 1991, uh, there was some transition at the church. And so they asked me to help out in the youth ministry um, or high school students. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll be glad to help out. So for a while there, I was the interim high school pastor, uh, but it was all volunteer. I was just doing this on, on my my um, my free time. And when that got settled, uh, when, they, when they brought in a full-time uh, youth minister or high school pastor, I then transitioned. They asked me, would you next take um, a role in helping us figure out what to do with young adults. And I said, sure, I'd be glad to. But I said at the time, hey, listen, I'm going through my own personal transitions that are a little bit alarming for people in theology. <laughs> and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I've had some real turmoil over this, um, what's happening in the world. And I explained this to the senior pastor. And he said, well, yeah, we this is we don't know what to do here. So we want to go with you if you're exploring some ideas on what you want to do as a pastor. Um, then they gave me kind of, um, I don't want to say carte blanche. It wasn't carte blanche, but they said, you can, you can, you know, experiment with uh, some ideas 
and uh, tell us the reason why, and we'll be happy to um, to share that with the, you know with the elders and and explain to them what's <laughs> yeah. going on. And churches like that so don't really we, give so, churches like that don't really give carte blanche to staff, <laughs> to no. staff members. <laughs> um, what was in the water about ministry to Gen Xers? why they weren't following the same trends as the boomers. I mean, these are kind of pragmatic questions, but then you're also, I get the sense, having these kind of theological, philosophical framework questions. So w- what was it before you started the church? What what prompted that conversation for you to kind of say, hey, I don't know if you guys are going to like what I do? Yeah, it first started for me actually in seminary when I'm sitting in class one one day, and the young man who's a, a, a brand new student raises his hand and asks a question about uh, a passage, a scripture. He said to the professor, "Couldn't you uh, interpret the passage this way?" And he then goes into his explanation of what what he thinks the ex- the interpretation could be. And I'll never forget the professor said, "You could, but you'd be wrong." And then everybody everybody in the class laughed. But I looked over at the young man, and he was perplexed because he didn't know what he didn't know. And so afterwards, in the hallway, he comes out of class and says, I, don't, I still don't understand what I said. And I said, well, listen, you're at a dispensational school. And he said, what is dispensationalism? I said, well, you probably should have asked that question before you got here. But they're also cessationists. And, and so he said, what is a cessationist? I said, again, these are all questions that probably should have been answered before you came here. But you're in a hardcore conservative cessationist dispensational school. And your question was wrong with all of the assumptions that go with that. And so when I, when I started thinking about this, it really perplexed me because I realized all of the stuff that we take into every time we read scripture, every time we do... Um, any of our, our, our worship, any type of uh, collective gathering, we have all these assumptions that we make about what's right, what's wrong, etc. And to be honest, it was disturbing to me because I was listening to myself. When I heard that professor say that to that young man, I, I thought to myself, you're exactly the same way. You know, you, you interpret with this set of assumptions. And so I, I really had a, a real moment where I started to really think this. And then lo and behold, I read Stan Grenz's book, uh, A Primer on Postmodernism, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not alone in this journey. At the same time, Willow Creek has formed its uh, association, the Willow Creek Association, and they're trying to do the idea that if you observe some key moments or key takeaways from this, uh, what we do up here at Willow Creek, these will transfer to your church, no matter what your theology is, no matter what your belief is. You can just kind of take these takeaways, apply them to your church, and then it'll cause you to grow. So that's going on. One of the things that they did is give permission for these young adult services to begin. And that's where people like Dieter Zander and, and others are starting to explore some new, well, new modes of worship. And so this just happened simultaneously. So when the pastor pastoral team came to me and said, could you help us? I said, well, sure, I can help. However, I'm going through some <laughs> some dilemma myself, so I want some freedom. And they said, yeah, you can have some freedom, you know, to a limit. You know, there was a limit there. But Well, one of the things that, that was happening in, in mid-90s also was a, a discussion on uh, the origin of the earth um, and where we came from, et cetera. So at Access, we decided, or, you know, we well, we did, it, it, and it, it worked out really well, but we invited two opposing thoughts to come present at the same night. So I had a, uh, had a young earth creationist present, and I had a, 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 an evolutionist present, and they both had a very strong argument, and then we opened it up for discussion afterwards. So instead of it being, you know, this is, a, um, this is what the Bible says, we did, we did a, an approach where we wanted a discussion to occur, so this one Sunday night, and it went for hours, actually, because the discussion was so interesting that, um, you know, people walked away saying, man, I've never, I've never gone to church receiving that much information. And initially, people were saying, well, you're promoting, you know, one side said you're promoting uh, young earth uh, creationism. And the other side was saying, no, you're promoting, um, you know, evolution. 
And I said, no, I'm not presenting either. I'm just, these are the ideas that are out there. Uh, but I had another night. Um, I'll never forget this as well. Um, because the pastor used to come to me, the senior pastor, Randy Frazee, uh, used to ask me to take on some difficult subjects sometimes. And so he asked me to do one on um, the salvific experience. What is salvation, et cetera. And I'll never forget that because once I, I was done with my presentation, people were coming up to me and say, that was the most amazing thing I've ever listened to. And they would then explain that their moment of salvation. However, another person right after them would come and explain their view on universalism. And they all tended to agree with what I was saying. It didn't matter what point they were taking, they were all agreeing. So they're coming from different perspectives altogether. And I, I started thinking, well, this is the place for it. This is the place to have those discussions. Now, the newspaper came one time and they said, it's like the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> it made me laugh, but it was kind of true because we had an open mic. People could say whatever they felt. We didn't wrap things up. We didn't put up, you know, try to make, you know, right or wrong answers. We just wanted people to have these discussions. And so that's what Access was back in the day. This may sound passe to us now, a, a debate between a young earth creationist and an evolutionist, but in the mid-90s at a Bible church in Texas, it was anything but passe. I asked Brad about the origins of Access and what got it started. We started Access in 1996 and, and there's another reason that happened too, a very personal thing that happened in our church. We lost a couple of young young adults to suicide. These are young people that had grown up in the church and our congregation was getting very concerned about what was going on, why there was this, again, why these things occurred. And they were looking for answers that weren't going to be found in, in you know, just our approach to, to Christianity. But this also gave a lot of permission for us to, to do some exploration as well. And so there was a lot of one-on-one -on -one time that was spent back in those days, uh, working with uh, young adults, talking to them, counseling them, working with them, uh, because that was part of my charge from the church was to, you know, to help this young adult congregation thrive and move away from some of the tragedy they've experienced. And not far from Brad and Dallas was Danielle Schroyer sitting on a couch at University Baptist Church in Waco, listening to Dave Crowder strum a guitar and Chris C. preach and having an epiphany herself about going into ministry. So we had, we had the little tiny house, and I mean, you could fit, what, 30 people in that. That didn't last very long. And then we started renting the Hippodrome. So I did that on Wednesdays in the Hippodrome, and then I came back to the Hippodrome on Sundays, and it was like the Crowder Band. I love all those guys. And um, we would have church there. So I just spent a lot of time at the Hippodrome. I loved everything about all of it. I just loved all of these people. I loved all the conversations we were having. I got to be really good friends with Kyle Lake, who was the associate pastor at the time. And most of the time when I would go in uh, to UBC for my like, you know, Tuesday three hour shift or whatever that I was doing for my internship, it would just be Kyle and I talking theology. Like it was wild that, you know, a couple people would get up at the beginning of UBC and they would just tell jokes and like laugh. And it would just be this sort of communal, just to a bunch of college kids. It was just so nice for church to feel real. I think it was just, wildly unorthodox that you go in and you see two college guys and they're like, Hey, good morning. So like, here's what happened last night. And they would joke and, and then they were like, all right, well, let's sing. There wasn't even any like pretty, you know, guitar under thing to send. To it was like, no, we're just, all right. Well, so that was fun. And like, welcome. We're glad you're here. And like, now we're going to sing. It was just all so very authentic and it felt so nice. So UBC was amazing and great. Um, it really opened up my eyes to thinking about what church could be. And it was just a great place for me to, to ask all those intro questions. Emerged 
is a homebrewed Christianity production. Trip Fuller and Tony Jones are your hosts. Production, mixing, and sound design by Josh Gilbert. Media and marketing by David Trotter. The music you're hearing is from the Cobalt Season, thanks to Ryan Sharp. Other music used is from Solomon's Porch. Thanks to all the Emerged members who make this show possible. And thanks to you for listening. See you next time. just finished the second episode of the Emerged Podcast. This crowdfunded production is a whole bunch of work, like Cray Cray Volumes. If you enjoy it, want to keep making it happen, and let us finish telling the story, head to EmergePodcast.com and join the community. There are people donating to make this podcast possible. And because they're helping us out, we give them all sorts of bonus features like ad-free versions of the public show, live streams on the off week, and bonus interviews. And this week, this week you'll get to hear from the man Brad Cecil, the one with the PowerPoint that got in fetal position and tells some pretty wild stories. So come join up, EmergePodcast.com. And guess what? You could be a producer like our friends at the Open Table Network and Karen Sloan. Don't make them lonely. Lonely.